Good morning, VCC. Pastor Nick here. Sorry I can't join you in person. As you probably already know, Jen and I tested positive for COVID yesterday, and so the whole family is at home. Uh, At the time of this recording, we're both doing pretty well. We're not particularly worried about it, but we do have to hide from the world for a while. So we appreciate your flexibility. And I know this is going to be a little weird being uh, in person for most of church, but then listening to the uh, message via video. But I pray that you'll be uh, blessed by it as we go through the Word of God together. Now, if you've been tracking with us through this this uh, series on Genesis, especially the last part where we've been working on the Joseph story, you already know all of the drum- dramatic things that have been happening so far. I'm not going to recap all of those, but I will recap just a little bit for you. So. Joseph was sold as a slave by his brothers. He spent the last 22 years in Egypt where God has raised him up to be the second most important man, second most powerful man really in the known world at that point. He's the governor over Egypt. He's overseeing this giant program of food distribution because there have been seven years of great plenty, and now we're in our second year of what will be seven years of famine, not just in Egypt, but in all over the known world. Joseph's brothers, the scoundrels who sold him as a slave when he was just 17, they have come to Egypt, purchased food from him, gone home, eaten all the food, come back now as promised with their brother Benjamin, the full-blood brother to Joseph. They are purchasing more food. They've had a great big banquet. Uh, their donkeys are loaded, ready to go. They, um, they head off the next day. They still don't know that Joseph, the, the, the man who's governing Egypt, is their brother, Joseph. He's, he's kept his identity hidden. And as they're making their way out of the city, heading back to the land of Canaan, the steward of Joseph's house chases them down and accuses them of stealing Joseph's special silver cup. Now they know that they're innocent of this, and so they make this rash vow. They say, whoever, whoever has taken the cup, whichever one of us has taken the cup, will surely die, and the rest of us will be your servants. The, uh, the steward of the house makes a deal with them and says, no, we're, we're not going to kill anybody, or we're not going to keep you all as servants, but we will keep as a servant the one who has the cup. And then there's this dramatic time where they go through, and they find that in the end, it's Benjamin, the youngest the beloved one who has the cup, they, are, uh, they, they fall apart. They tear their clothes in mourning. They, uh, they don't know what to do with this. They, they then head back to Joseph, and they, uh, they bow before him, face down on the ground, pleading for mercy. And there's this, this amazing conversation that takes place. Remember, they still don't know that it's Joseph that they're talking to. This whole situation has been set up by Joseph. It's been a test. It's been a a trap to figure out, uh, have these guys matured? Have they been changed? Are they still the the scoundrels that they were 22 years earlier? Joseph wants to find out, will they abandon Benjamin just as they had abandoned him? That's the whole point of this particular plan. Now, amazingly, through this, uh, Judah, the fourth-born son, uh, he rises up as a hero. He, he was a total loser earlier in his life, De- did terrible things. It was his idea to sell Joseph as a slave, but Judah has been changed by God over the years, and Judah is now behaving like a real man, and Judah stands up, and he offers himself as a substitute, as a ransom for Benjamin. 
there was this dramatic conversation, and we ended the, the last chapter last week with, with this, this plea, this heartfelt plea on, out of Judah's mouth, trying to convince Joseph that he should take Judah instead of Benjamin. So we read this here. This is from last week. This is Genesis 44, 30 through 34. I'm just going to read this so we can get back up to speed. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die, and your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol, that is, to the grave. So Judah says, look, we can't go home without Benjamin, or dad's going to die. So I will stay in his place to save the life of dad, and to ensure the freedom of Benjamin and the other brothers. This, this is a, a courageous, manly thing to do, and uh, it is a foreshadowing of what Jesus does for us. And Judah goes on, says, For your servant, speaking of himself, became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. So that's how it ended last week. Judah, out of love for his father, out of love for his brother Benjamin, offers himself as a substitute, as a ransom to get Benjamin's freedom. Now, this is more than Joseph can handle. He has has kept his cool. He's had to leave a few times and kind of compose himself when he's been talking to them, but he's he's mostly kept his emotions under control. But at this point, he can't hold it back any longer. It's as though the the dam of the emotions that have been building up in him for, for years, for 22 years, he sees this emotional, heartfelt, love-motivated plea by his scoundrel brother Judah on behalf of his father and his beloved brother Benjamin, and his heart just melts. The dam breaks. You may remember in 2017 when that, the Oroville Dam in uh, California was, was falling apart. There had been so much rain that the reservoir behind it had filled up and was starting to flow over the top, and there's a giant concrete spillway that was supposed to handle all the overflow, but there was just there was too much water. It couldn't handle it. And uh, You'll remember that the, the, the sides of the concrete overflow area started to erode away, and then it was just, it was, it was so fast how the, the, the giant earthen dam just started disintegrating as the, the, the piles and piles of water wore it away. I remember watching those news accounts thinking, the whole thing's going to fall. I, I can't imagine what is going to happen. And, you know, they're evacuating people all, all downstream and all that. Now, it, it ended up being not as bad as we thought it might be. They were able to get control of it and, and repair it. But, uh, but that was a dramatic moment. Judah, giving this speech, causes that same kind of overflow in Joseph. But, but he's not able to control it. It just pours out of him. And I, I wonder if you've had an experience like that, where emotions have built up for years maybe. Maybe there are good emotions, maybe there are bad emotions, but the pressure got so great that you couldn't hold them any longer, and they just they come gushing 
out in a raging torrent. That is what happens at the beginning of the chapter that we're studying today. So this is Genesis 45. If you're looking in a pew Bible, it's on page 38. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. So the second most powerful man in the whole world is now blubbering like a baby. He can't control. It's just he's fallen apart. He sends out all of the Egyptian people out of the room, so it's just him and his brothers. But you can imagine that they're all listening outside the door and outside the open windows, trying to figure out what's going on. Our our heroic governor, who has saved our lives, is falling apart as a blubbering baby. What in the world is happening? You can imagine that the brothers are also very confused at what's going on here. So verse 3. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So I imagine he basically says, look, guys, surprise, it's me. It's Joseph. And I don't know if he had to like tear off some of the fancy Egyptian robes or whatever it was, or if he had a particular birthmark he could show him to prove or whatever. But he says, I'm Joseph. I'm your brother. You, you slave, sold me into slavery 22 years ago, but here I am now. And their response is not one of, uh, of joy. It, it's not one of, uh, of, of joyful wonder and celebration. It's, it's a response of fear. They don't know what to make of this. And this makes sense because uh, they thought they've just been dealing with this harsh guy. And it turns out that harsh guy is their brother, and he has um, reason to be upset with them from 22 years ago. And he now has the power to do whatever he wants to them. Their guilt and their shame come crushing down on them. They, uh, they pull back away from Joseph in fear. But here comes the other surprise. Verse 4. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. So uh, see, see the beautiful, surprising turn here. The brothers say, oh no, there's Joseph. And they pull back in fear. And, and they should because they've been, they've been terrible to him. Similarly, uh, if we could just in our sinfulness stand before the perfect holy God of the universe, our correct response would be to fall back in fear and terror. That They pull away when they find out it's Joseph. But Joseph, in mercy and in grace, he moves towards them and he invites them to him. It's the same way with God. We're going to see how that wraps around even better as we go through the rest of the story, but this is giving us hints of, of what would be the gospel of Jesus Christ thousands of years after that, when, when we, are, we deserve to be pushed away and be punished by God, but through the sacrificial death and resurrection of Jesus on our behalf, we are welcomed, we're, we're welcomed into the presence of God. We can be at peace with God. So he says, come near to me, please. And they came near. He says, I'm your brother Joseph, 
whom you sold into Egypt. So it's not like he's just lost his mind and forgotten what they've done. He remembers it. He reminds them of it, but he's still being merciful to them. He says, don't be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. And then he says this very surprising thing. For God sent me before you to preserve life. God sent me before you to preserve life. This is the beginning of the climax of this story. We've been wondering, you know, what, what is God doing in all of this? What is the, what's the ultimate goal here? What's the end game that God is working towards? And now we see, and we're going to see over these next few verses, that Joseph is going to lay out in three statements uh, part of what his theology is. Theology just means what you think about God, how you understand God, the study of God. And Joseph has a specific theology of the sovereignty, that is God rules over everything, of the sovereignty of God, and he's going to lay it out. And this verse 5 is the beginning of that, where he says, God sent me before you to preserve life. So, yes, brothers, you sold me as a slave, but ultimately it was God working through that, getting me into this particular position so that I could save the lives of many. So we talked a few weeks ago about the the term providence, and we defined it this way, the collection of natural and supernatural ways that God works his sovereign will in his world. Another way of saying it would be this, how God works supernaturally through natural means. It was God's will to get Joseph into this position of authority at exactly the right time in order to save the lives of many. Supernaturally, he could have just you know, teleported Joseph over there and, and manipulated Pharaoh's mind so that he would put Joseph in charge of everything. But in providence, the way that God uses the natural things to bring about his supernatural plan, God did it in a very different way. Joseph clearly says that this whole thing is God's plan, that it's God's will that he was sold as a slave into Egypt, that it was God's will that he would uh, end up in prison, wrongfully accused, that those years where he's in a smelly, stinky dungeon and the rats are trying to nibble on his feet, that, that those were part of God's plan. He says this without bitterness. He, he says it just as a matter of fact. Now he's going to expand on that more as we see more of his theology. Verse 6, <clears throat> For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And I'm not even going to try to plow, not even try to plant, because it's so dry, they know that there's no hope. This is going to be a really bad next five years. God sent me before you to preserve for you, so not just for the whole world, like he's, he's saving people from all nations right now, but to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So he's saying specifically, God has worked this stuff out for the family of Israel, Jacob, their father. He, God is preserving a remnant. Now, if you've read the whole Bible, you know that the, the idea of a remnant shows up many places in the Old Testament. Um, God is preserving a remnant. A, a, he's holding back a few people, preserving them in his chosen family right now in this story. Uh, he will do that through the exodus. 
Um, he will do that uh, uh, later when he, he sends them off in exile to Babylon and the, the story of Daniel and all that. He preserves a remnant in that time. And then in Romans, we get the, the, the new insight. In the New Testament book of Romans, we get this insight that, that God is still preserving a remnant, but that remnant is now his church, those whom he has saved through repentance and faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus. The church is now the remnant. And that goes, this is the first time this idea of remnant shows up, and it comes out of Joseph's mouth here. So he's saying, again, God sent me before you, not only to save the lives of a whole bunch of people you've never met, but to save your lives as a remnant of that chosen family, the family of Israel. If we go down to verse 8 now, he says, So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh, meaning he's basically calling the shots in the land, and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. So you didn't send me here, brothers. God sent me here, and he has now made me basically Lord of all the land of Egypt. So for a third time, he, he gives voice to this theology of the, the sovereignty of God, God's providence being worked out, God's master plan being worked out. And you might think, well, that's easy for Joseph to say now. I mean, everything is peachy keen for Joseph right now. He's living at the top, literally, of the world. He's got everything he could want. Everything is done for him. Everybody loves him. Everybody thinks that he is uh, the savior of the known world, and basically he is. He is at the top, and so of course he can look at it and say, see, God brought me here. But remember, remember that roller coaster of his life where he's going down in the dip, and he's going down in the deeper dip, and he's, he thinks he's going to get out, and he ends up in the dip even longer. And through all of that, Joseph is saying, that was God's plan. God's sovereign plan, even when the rats were nibbling at my toes, God's sovereign plan was at work. I wonder, can you say that about your life? Can you trust in God in that same way? Can you look back at not only the highs, but the lows, and can you say with confidence, God's sovereign plan was at work in my life then? And I couldn't see it. I didn't know what was happening, but God was at work, even in the low spots. If we go on to verse 9, Joseph continues his speech to his brothers, and he says, Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord over all Egypt. Come down to me and do not tarry. So, guys, go home, get dad, tell him I'm alive, and come back. Joseph wants to be reconciled to his whole family. He, he doesn't want to punish his family. He doesn't want to lord it over his family. He wants to bless them. He wants to have mercy on them, shower them with grace. And the broken family relationships that are now two decades old, Joseph wants to pull them back together in reconciliation. He wants to be the whole family, not just the brothers. He wants dad in on this too. So verse 10, 
He continues. He offers them this, this great deal. He says, You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. So the, the land of Goshen, the area that, that they're going to be given, is the best of the land in Egypt. The the ground is fertile. The, the crops will be plentiful. The life will be good. Uh, later, Pharaoh himself refers to it as the, the best of the land in Egypt. Uh, those of you who are Dark County natives, you might say, uh, you know, come live in Dark County where the soil is dark and good and the crops are, are strong and plentiful. That's the idea of this living in the land of Goshen. So not only is Joseph going to save the lives of his starving family members, He's going to set them up for, for the good life. He's going to give them the best land in Egypt. And this is all part of God's plan. Now remember, this is happening in, still in the book of Genesis. And if we go all the way back to the third chapter of Genesis, you'll remember when the fall happens, when Adam and Eve rebel against God and they're kicked out of the garden and the land is cursed and they're, they're removed from that place, that land of blessing. Here we are in chapter 45 of the same book, and we're starting to see the reversing of that. We're going to see that through the, the rest of the Bible. We're going to see how temporarily the Israelites live in the land of Goshen, but then they're eventually enslaved and they have a, a hard life. But then they're taken out of the land of Egypt in the story of the Exodus, and temporarily they're given the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey, but they are taken out of that into exile, and then they eventually come back to the promised land. Uh, today, in the New Testament era, we as the church are promised, as we are already new creations, that we will get to live in a fully new creation. Eventually, a new heaven and a new earth is the ultimate promised land, and we see hints of that even here in the story in Genesis 45. Verse 12 then, and now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt, and of all that you have seen. I don't know if he's rubbing it in there or not, because remember, he was the favorite son, and they were very jealous. Now he says, go home and tell dad how great it is for me now. All that you have seen. Hurry, bring my father down here. And then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and he wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and he wept upon them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. So there's lots of, lots of blubbering all over each other, you know, tears all over the place, runny noses, lots of Kleenex being used. But they just they can't believe that God is actually doing this thing where he's, he's bringing reconciliation in the family. And then that last little sentence there is interesting. And after that, his brothers talked with him. Now, why would Moses make sure that he puts that in there? Well, if you remember back in chapter 37, when they were going to sell him because they hated him and they were jealous of him, we, we got this recorded by Moses, chapter 37, 4. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. They just they couldn't bring themselves to speak peacefully to him. And now, 22 years later, they can sit down and they can have a peaceful conversation with each other 
Because reconciliation is taking place. Joseph is leading them. Verse 16. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, here's the report, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, do this. Load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan. Take your father and your households and come to me, and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt. And you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, do this. Take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. So because Joseph has been a faithful servant to Pharaoh, because he has lived a life of integrity and courage and self-control and high character, Pharaoh not only trusts and relies on Joseph, he loves Joseph. And if Joseph's family is around, he wants to honor Joseph's family because he thinks so highly of Joseph himself. So he says, I'm going to give you the best land. I'm going to send you with carts. You go get all of your women and children. You don't have to worry about all your stuff. I mean, you can bring your favorite things, but, but I'm, I'm going to give you everything that you need. So don't spend all your time packing up. Just come live with us. So we see the providence of God at work here again. I want, you, I want you to see this clearly. God is using the pagan king of Egypt to provide for his chosen people. God's using the pagan king of Egypt to provide for his chosen people. Isn't that amazing? God is using natural means, carts, donkeys, king in order to supernaturally care for his people according to his sovereign plan. Verse 21, the sons of Israel did so. Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes, but to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. Now, remember at the banquet that they had, uh, Benjamin was given five times as much food as everybody else as an honor to him. He's getting honored here again too. Bunch of fancy clothes. And then um, you see here the, he's given a bunch of money too. Uh, we're told 300 shekels of silver. Do you remember how much the brothers sold Joseph for as a slave? It was 20 shekels of silver. So 15 times as much of that is now given just as a gift to beloved little brother Benjamin. Verse 23. <clears throat> to his father he sent as follows, 10 donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt. Remember when the brothers came back the second time, they brought what was referred to as the, the best fruits of the land of Israel as a gift for Joseph. Now they're being sent back with all the best of Egypt as a gift to Jacob. And ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, provision for his family on the journey. And then he sent his brothers away, and as they departed, he said to them, Do not quarrel on the way. And I just, I, he's jabbing them in the ribs there. Like, he knows these guys, and he says, Don't fight with each other on the way. You know, be, be nice. Just trust that, that God is really in control of all of this, and, and stop the bickering that you guys are so good at. 
verse 25. So they went up out of Egypt, and they came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob, and they told him, Joseph is still alive. He is ruler over all the land of Egypt, and his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. So now, I imagine old Jacob is sitting there watching as the caravan approaches, and he realizes, well, the donkeys, there's more of them, and they seem to be heavily loaded, and then there are a bunch of carts too. What, what is going on? Why do they have more stuff? And then I imagine that the boys ran kind of the last few hundred yards or so, and they, they came breathlessly in, and they said, Dad, you're not going to believe this. Joseph is alive. And he's the ruler of Egypt. How does Jacob process that? He thought his son has been dead for 22 years, and yet he's told that he's, he's come back from the dead, basically. He's, whom he thought was dead is actually alive. This is, this is more than he can handle. It's more than his old heart can handle, and we're told that his heart goes numb for it. And I think that's, that may be suggesting to us that he's, he's like on the verge of a heart attack here. He's just the, the stress of this situation, the wonder of it all, his, his old ticker can't handle it, and he starts to falter. Verse 27, but when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived, and Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. So when Jacob realizes that his son is alive, uh, and he's got a process, hey, my other sons have been lying to me all these years. He's not actually dead. I wonder what actually happened. How did he get to Egypt? He's got all these questions going around in him. But when he hears that Joseph is alive, that he's, he's in a sense, come back from the dead, that, then Jacob revives himself. The old man's got a little bit of kick left in him. He says, I'm going to go down to Egypt, and I'm going to see my son, even if it's the last thing that I do. Next week, we're going to see how that reunion takes place. We're going to see how, how dad and then all of the women and children are going to come and there's going to be this big family reunion. But for right now, I want you to just marvel at the sovereign plan of God and how God has been working out through all of these chapters exactly what he wants. His providence has been at work. His perfect plan has been working this whole time. If this story is true, and I believe that it is 100% true, then God is at work in all the areas of our lives, all the time, the high points, the low points, all of that, bringing about His sovereign plan. And you can trust Him. Even if you're at a low point, you can trust Him. Now, I'm not saying, hey, your life might be bad now, but if you trust in Jesus, He'll make you the ruler of the free world. That's not what I'm saying at all. But God has a plan. God's sovereign plan is hard for us to see. Sometimes, maybe most of the time, impossible for us to see. But he's always working it out. And I wonder how you need to trust in that today. What is going on in your life where you need to trust in the sovereign plan of God? But more amazing than this natural reconciliation that we see happening here in the story of, of Joseph in Genesis this points us to the, the supernatural reconciliation that is possible today 
through the death and resurrection of Jesus on our behalf. Just as Judah offers himself as a substitute for Benjamin, Jesus, who is a descendant of the tribe of Judah, offers himself as the perfect sacrifice in order to purchase our freedom. And by trusting in his death and resurrection, we are adopted into the family of God. We deserved punishment, just like Joseph's brothers deserved punishment, and yet we receive mercy when we respond to the good news of Jesus with repentance and faith. And so as we get ready right now to celebrate the Lord's table and communion, I want to read to you a short passage out of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and I want us to see it through the lens of this Genesis story. And it's just beautiful how it goes together. This is 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21. It's on page 966 in the pew box. This is the Apostle Paul writing, so this is a couple thousand years after the Joseph story. This is after the death and resurrection of Jesus, and the church is growing all over the Mediterranean region. And Apostle Paul, the greatest missionary of the early church, he's writing this to the church in Corinth, and he says here in the fifth chapter, he says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that is, you have been saved by Jesus, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. He already is. Not like someday he'll be a new creation, but he already is is a new creation. It's this idea of, of resurrection, just like uh, Joseph seems to come back from the dead, and Jesus really does come back from the dead, we, as believers in Christ, are resurrected to new life, new creation in Christ. And then he goes on, he says, the old has passed away, behold, the new has come. So the old life of enmity, strife, hatred, what Joseph and his brothers lived with, that old life where we were enemies with God is now replaced. The old has passed away, the new has come when we are reconciled to God in Christ. Verse 18, all this is from God. So there we see the sovereign plan of God again. God is at work. He is the one doing this. He's the one accomplishing our salvation. It's not our works. We can't perform well enough to be accepted by him, to be forgiven by him, to be welcomed into his family. It is all and only the work of Christ on our behalf. So this all comes from God, according to verse 18, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Notice it's past tense there. It's a done deal. If you are in Christ, you are secured in Him for all eternity. You have been reconciled. You're not hoping to be good enough to be reconciled. You have been reconciled. And God Himself is the worker of that salvation, just like God was the worker of the salvation of all those people in the Joseph story. He was working through Joseph, but it is God ultimately who's doing the saving. So, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So we have a role to play. Verse 19, that is, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. I'm talking about us. So our trespasses, our sins, if we're in Christ, they're not counted against us anymore. Jesus has taken all of that on himself and has paid the debt in full. And it's God's work again. Jesus did the work necessary for our reconciliation. We can't save ourselves. He did it for us. And then he goes on, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. And so we see the providence of God again. The supernatural plan of God 
is being played out through natural means. So, supernaturally, Jesus dies, pays the price for us. We're welcomed in, reconciled to God through that supernatural death and resurrection. And yet, how does anybody know about this? Through the natural means of us telling people. That again is the providence of God. Supernatural goals, supernatural outcomes done through natural ways. Providence. So we are given the message, we're entrusted with the message of reconciliation to tell other people about what Jesus has done for us. And then verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. So uh, we've got you know, the royal court of Pharaoh. There are probably a bunch of ambassadors from other countries there. Uh, Paul is saying here that we are ambassadors for our king, Jesus. We plead uh, his message to the people. And that message is this. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. The world out there is full of people who are not reconciled to God. There are probably a bunch of people in this room right now or listening online who are not reconciled to God. And so I, just like Paul, I plead with you now, be reconciled. God, making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin, our sin, who knew no sin, Jesus, so that in him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. This great exchange. We give Jesus all of our sin. Jesus gives us his righteousness. That is how We are reconciled to God. And that is what we celebrate today as we come to the Lord's table. So remember, remember what Jesus has done for you. How he has done the work to reconcile you to him. Remember that his sovereign plan has been working it out all of these years, even thousands of years before Jesus would actually die on the cross. We're getting hints of it from Joseph in the Genesis story. And remember that you, if you are in Christ, you have been given the ministry of reconciliation, entrusted with the ministry of reconciliation to be an ambassador to the world and tell them about your King Jesus. If you are in Christ, all of this is true of you. I pray you will remember that now as we reflect and get ready for communion. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for these words of Genesis 45 and 2 Corinthians 5. Thank you, Lord, that the the whole story is knit together over thousands of years, dozens of different authors, 66 different books, and yet it's one coherent, complete, sufficient story that you have delivered to us as your authoritative word of God. And so we can trust that. We can know that these things really did happen, that they're not just some fairy tale that some guy made up in order to teach a good moral lesson, but they are what actually happened, the the sovereign plan of the God of the universe working itself out through providence in the life of Joseph and his brothers. And now that providence continues in our lives as we are called to be ambassadors of reconciliation 
in the world. So help us, Lord, to remember now what you have done for us and to proclaim that to the world. In Jesus' name, amen.